want to start this podcast by returning to one of the central ideas that I've been discussing periodically throughout, and that is, why is it that we're reading something like Thomas Paine's argument for American Revolution in A Course on Literature? Shouldn't we be reading something like, again, Edgar Allan Poe or Nathaniel Hawthorne or someone like Walt Whitman? And the fact of the matter is that, yet again, this is what people were writing about at this particular time. And since Thomas Paine represents such a significant step in the American Revolution, arguably without his pamphlet, uh, we never would have had the American Revolution in the first place, it's important for us to look at his work in the context of the larger conversation taking place. As well, you've studied uh, the art of composition in English 111 and English 112, and based on that art, we're always looking for people doing things with words. And I discussed that as a part of uh, looking at Christopher Columbus, because he was trying to convince his patrons back in Europe to send him back to uh, North America. <clears throat> when we reach Thomas Paine here, Thomas Paine is very similarly doing something with words. I want to look at how successful he was, and I want to look at some of his arguments in the larger context. And I also want to look at the title of his work as a good inroad to the content thereof. Let's get started. Let's start with one of the obvious things that we can immediately notice about this work, and that is its title, Common Sense. Now, in reading this, I've heard a good number of students over the years say things like, oh, this was very difficult, and I had a hard time following him. But yet, at this time period, reading was very popular. A good portion of the, uh, the individuals living in the colonies in North America were literate. That's how they passed their time, is going about reading. Uh, whether it be individually or as a, a uh, group activity, people would get together and listen to others read works to them, sort of like audiobooks today, except an older version. And so in this particular case, his common sense is an appeal to the basic knowledge that a good number of people would have had at this time period. Um, they would have been at least passingly familiar, if not outright familiar, with works by people like John Locke, Thomas Hobbes, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and these are individuals who are arguing about the basis of government. They were arguing about things like social contract and uh, the philosophy of why people submit to government in the first place. That's a philosophy that's still very much alive in the present, and it's part of our uh, public debate that takes place yet again, even as I'm recording this in 2020 and, and above, beyond. If you're listening to this in a, you know, a couple years or something like that, it's still very much going to be a part of our public debate as well. This brings me to one of the quotes that we can immediately see in his work. It's in the very short uh, introduction to the third edition inside of the links that I've provided in, in the course. And that says, a long habit of not thinking a thing wrong gives it a superficial appearance of being right and raises at first a formidable outcry and defensive custom, but the tumult soon subsides. Now, Again, this applies very much to the present because we've had plenty of things that have happened since this day that have been based on that kind of logic. The one that immediately jumps to mind, and this is because I teach Southern culture as well, is of course, slavery. This was precisely the argument that some people made. Well, we've been doing it this long. Why, why is it wrong? This is very much our custom. It's just the way things are. And that, that was one defense of many that, were often, uh, that was often shared in the American South. With that in mind, uh, he's, of course, talking about government at that time. Well, well, okay, we've always been ruled by England. Why, why do we need to change now? 
and that's his jumping off point. But I at least want to again call your attention to the fact that several of the arguments he uses throughout his entire piece still have merit in the present, which is one of the reasons why his work, Common Sense, is still read across the entire world, especially when you have a group of people um, moving against their government. His arguments still stand today because of their general appeal to the, just the basic uh, amount of common sense that any given person would have. So let's talk about that background just for a quick second so that that way you can understand it a little bit better. The average person in something like the 20th century, the 21st century, is not going to really understand contract theory and understand political philosophy. You actually have to seek out classes on those things. And the majority of people probably haven't heard of the name John Locke or Thomas Hobbes, unless you've had a class on uh, the American um, experience and the American history associated with the American Revolution. John Locke, more or less, was plagiarized in order to create our government. <clears throat> with that in mind, the basic gist of it is actually captured very well in Thomas Paine's work. At the beginning of the section of the origin and design of government in general, with concise remarks in the English Constitution, he says, uh, let's see, society, uh, excuse me, let me back up. Some writers have so confounded society with government as to leave little or no distinction between them, whereas they are not only different, but have different origins. Society is produced by our wants and government by our wickedness. The former promotes our happiness positively by uniting our affections, the latter negatively by restraining our vices. The one encourages intercourse, the other creates distinctions. The first is a patron, the last is a punisher. Those are ideas that are very much contained, again, in the aforementioned individuals. Thomas Hobbes essentially argued that in the state of nature, which is to say when there is no government, there is a war of all on all. That doesn't necessarily immediately start that way. I mean, this is not a, exactly a post-apocalyptic kind of landscape or anything like that, but it certainly does uh, break down to that particular view. It is a ugly necessity that we need a government in order to, as Thomas Paine said, uh, yeah, Thomas Paine says, uh, control our uh, our base instincts and control the way in which we approach the world. In essence, society, as he says, is produced by our wants. So we get together. Maybe I um, make pencils, and maybe you make paper, and maybe somebody else makes corn, and then somebody else makes you know, raises dogs or something like that. I don't have enough time to raise dogs on my own. I don't have enough time if I'm making pencils to go and plant corn and harvest it and things like that. So we have to come together. Again, society is produced by our wants. I want corn. The people who make corn probably need pencils in order to be able to record their um, their corn and their ledgers and things like that, and so forth and so on. So I'm, I've just given you a couple of examples from a larger social structure. We all come together because we want these things, but. If I go and say, you know what, I see you have a lot of corn and I have a handful of pencils and pencils just aren't doing that well right now um, because people have computers and smartphones, I will attack you and take your corn. So I'm going to you know, physically assault you. I'm going to possibly murder you. And then I'm just going to take all of your corn. Now, that's my evil. I've done something untoward. I've done something awful. And because of that, we need someone to come along and punish me because I've, I've done this heinous thing to society at large. There are one or two options. Everybody can get together in a mob mentality and, and come to me and punish me, which seems unsatisfactory because then who makes the final judgment? And as we have often seen, mob mentalities are not a very good way to enact justice. 
or each of us can give up just a little bit of our freedom in order to have a different person who contributes to society, this being the justice system, judges, lawyers, um, police officers, so forth and so on. Now, that might not completely start immediately there, but we're going to get there eventually. So that police officer is going to come, that person is going to arrest me because that person uh, represents to all of us the little bit of freedom that we've given up. We all agree that if we do something wrong, that that police officer has a right to fix the situation by addressing it and then carrying the offender to a judge who will make those decisions. So we've now <clears throat> created a government. That's at least the first step in a government. We have, of course, people who are going to make laws, a president, a king, a queen, whatever we happen to have. But that is, again, the function of government to control our wickedness, to control our vice. If something goes wrong, that person and all the others who are inside that legal system are there to enforce the laws and punish those individuals. Now, I spent a long time explaining that just a second ago. Because essentially, in this first section, that's what he's concentrating on. He's doing this very fashionable thing at this time period. Uh, Thomas Hobbes did it. Again, uh, Thomas Hobbes' work, Leviathan, um, Leviathan to him was government. Is that uh, necessary evil that controls everyone. Jean-Jacques Rousseau is writing about these things as well. And there seems to be this sort of love affair that takes place at this time, where everybody thinks that nature is better than government. So that's why he says that government is there to keep us from doing evil things. As you're reading through this first section, consider that as the basis of his entire argument. Again, he's tracing um, the origin of government. Look for places where he's indicating nature. So for example, he says, some convenient tree will afford them a state house under the branches of which the whole colony may assemble to deliberate on public matters. Because that's not only a reference to nature, it's also a reference to the government that he will eventually argue for throughout this entire section. Because if you pay attention, every single branch is composed of various um, little tiny branches that come together to form the bigger branch. In other words, if you want to hire a representative or elect a representative to go to a central location, that being the trunk of the tree, to represent you, um, that filters from the tiniest to the largest trunk on that tree. All right, he also goes through and deconstructs um, the way in which people gain power inside of, of these sorts of circumstances, right? Uh, so he, he thinks about in the distant past, he calls it, where uh, kings may have achieved their power from. And yet again, he's thinking of nature, he's thinking of somebody like Thomas Hobbes, he's thinking of somebody like Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and he's uh, attempting to make that argument on the American front using these fairly lofty, um, uh, abstract ideals that had been discussed to that particular point. With that in mind, that's not the only argument that he wants to make. Again, that's the general gist of the argument in the first section. I've at least given you some keys to unpack that. But now I want to move on to the second section, and I want to look at the argument that he's making here. In this section, he not only talks about you know, the idea of the social contract, and the idea of the state of nature. And again, by the way, he, I want to call attention to it. He begins the section by saying, mankind being originally equals in the order of creation. Yet again, a reference to nature, but now a specific reference to, as well, 
divinity, because that's essentially what this argument in this particular section is. If we look at the Bible, and keep in mind that this is not a biblical studies class, so I'm just going to sort of skim through the basis of it. Of course, I understand that it's far more complicated than this, but again, I'm just going to give an overview here. In the Bible, the Israelites saw other nations had kings, and they didn't they, they felt left out, so to speak. And so they asked for their own kings. And God essentially said, no, 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 no. That's not how this works. You don't get a king. And the Israelites said, no, we want a king. And so essentially God sent them a series of individuals who would lead, who were not very good at leading because um, God didn't want a human being to be in charge. Of course, he wanted to be the one in charge in turn. And so that's the argument that Thomas Paine has picked up in this particular um, this particular section, right? So, for example, monarchy is ranked in Scripture as one of the sins of the Jews, for which a curse and reserve is denounced against them. The history of that trans, uh, transaction is worth attending to. And then he goes into again briefly unpacking this and showing that those with hereditary rights or those who <clears throat> who happen to have this sort of you know divine right logic are actually being illogical according to scripture. I opened this entire podcast episode by saying that we were examining his work in the context of his use his use of rhetoric in order to achieve his purpose. And that's specifically what this is doing. He's actually, he knows his audience well. He knows that in the colonies, there has already been the first great awakening. Again, look at your uh, textbook for further information on that and some of the other podcasts where I've mentioned this several different times. He knows that they've already gone through the First Great Awakening, and so he knows that he's talking to a deeply religious audience. And because he's talking to a deeply re religious audience, the argument he's making in the second section, based on scripture, based on the, the biblical accounts and the history contained inside the Bible, is very much um, going to appeal to that audience and to be an, uh, the type of argument that's going to catch their attention and hold them well. I want to call your attention to one other aspect here, and that is, again, that he's continuing this argument of where did governments come from in the past? Yet I should be glad to ask how they suppose kings came at first. The question admits but of three answers, which is to say either by lot, by election, or by usurpation. And then he goes on to unpack that. If by lot, then why in the world do we have hereditary secession? One guy happened to get it, right? By election, same thing. Okay, that guy was worthy, but that doesn't mean that his children happened to be. And usurpation means that there was some other way that a king was selected, and now a group of ruffians, as he basically calls it, came along and um, defied that person and, and threw them off of the throne. So yet again, he's weaving together all the various strains here and, uh, and pulling them into one overall argument that he's making in favor of uh, setting up a new government. Okay, so the first section is an appeal to widely familiar literature to individuals living in the colonies. The second section is, of course, an appeal to something like the Bible, and I like to call the third section the um, the pep rally. <laughs> now, some people who are familiar with this work may laugh. Maybe you'll laugh at some point after reading it, but I call it the pep rally because in this section, he essentially just gives up any pretense whatsoever and just jumps straight into slugging it out with some kind of harsh language in some places and, and some very common sense, again, appeals. But at the same time, these are the kinds of appeals that would likely get a colonist to take up arms. 
Uh, I mean, you're talking to a group of people who have been through, you know, I'm putting air quotes on this, something like the Boston Massacre, which was a, a largely a misunderstanding. In retrospect, if you read about it, it's it's quite clear that this was a misunderstanding. But again, <clears throat> he's attempting to, to trigger these individuals into some kind of open conflict. So for example, he says, uh, there's something perpetually absurd in supposing a continent to be perpetually governed by an island. I think I put perpetually in the wrong place there, but the idea is that Britain is quite small compared to the potential of really what he would think to be all of North America. At this point, again, there are no lines drawn around the United States. So there are some people who think, um, I, I would argue wisely at this point, that Canada is going to be a part of the United States. That really, probably all of North America is going to be part of the United States after the United States um, repulses England and then pushes itself west, right? So he's not wrong. This kind of appeal uh, goes straight to the heart of what he hopes to accomplish here. There are a couple of other arguments like that as well. Another great example, and again, going back to the pep rally thing, is the one where he directly sort of taunts his audience by suggesting that if they don't do it, their children will have to. So he says, again, in the third section, as parents, we can have no joy knowing that this government is not sufficiently lasting to ensure anything which we may bequeath to posterity. And by a plain method of argument, as we are running the next generation into debt, we ought to do the work of it. Otherwise, we use them meanly and pitifully. And by we use them, he's talking about his children. He's talking about we're just going to keep prolonging this situation, and eventually our kids are going to have to take up arms. And when they take up arms, uh, it's going to be a pitiful situation because they're going to be even further into debt. So let's just go ahead and get it over with, guys. Right? Let's just go ahead. Let's just go out. Let's revolt. We're sort of all leaning in that direction in the first place. Let's just get it over with, and we can make the world a better place for our children, our posterity. That's a pretty good argument. And that's the kind of argument that's going to trigger somebody into doing something because most parents would do anything for their kids. And it's no different at this time period. I'm going to point to two other very straightforward arguments that he makes inside the, the pep rally section, as I've been calling it. One is uh, down, let's see, about midway down. Though I would carefully avoid giving unnecessary offense. Yeah, right. Yet I'm inclined to believe that all those who espouse the doctrine of reconciliation with Great Britain may be included within the following descriptions. Interested men, meaning those who have some kind of business interest with the other individual, um, who are not to be trusted. Weak men who cannot see. In other words, these are cowards. They're not going to fight no matter who they're you know, fighting for or what the cause. So they're just going to stay home because, again, they're cowards prejudiced men who cannot see. In other words, these are just really loyal subjects. They're just completely incapable of listening to any rationale whatsoever. And that's why I said the yeah, right, just a second ago, because honestly, again, if you look at this, he's just taunting people into action. He wants to see people act and he's calling them out on their behaviors. Which one are you? Um, of course, this is an unfair way to set it up. Some people may just be, as, <clears throat> as we have it today, conscientious objectors, but uh, again, he's trying to taunt them into action of some sort. All right, the last thing I want to point to in this section for the pep rally is the way in which he sort of talks everybody up. Now, he's insulted individuals. He's called people out on their behavior. But toward the end, he starts saying things like, the colonies have manifested such a spirit of good order and obedience to continental government as is sufficient to make every reasonable person easy and happy on that head. 
In other words, we're doing a really good job of leading ourselves. There's no reason for us whatsoever to cater to England. Again, let's just go ahead and get it over with. Again, if anybody's resisting that, they're probably one of those types of people I just mentioned a second ago. He goes on to lay out a form of government which is, in large part, leans into John Locke and his, his ideas. Uh, Jefferson and Adams themselves understood these ideas and, and they you know, used them along with others as they went about forming the government. So he's in good company. He's making references yet again that people during this time period would have understood. All right, let's go ahead and close this out. And I want to close it out by looking at Payne himself a little bit. I saved him toward the end because there are a couple of surprises here. They're not huge surprises, but they're the kinds of surprises I like to save until after I've shared all the, the really great arguments that he's making all the way throughout. Again, I said that this, his document, Common Sense, is still used by those who want to uh, revolt against their government into the present, because you can see they are common sense arguments. These are the kinds of arguments that don't rely on research. They are more or less universally true. Hey, why in the world do we have a king? Why do we have to follow his son? Um, those arguments very well, by the way, may be used in a place like North Korea today and still stand up to scrutiny. However, he after this, um, because very few of the individuals who led the revolution died, and certainly none of them in a, a really horrible public way, um, he and others thought, oh, this is the beginning of something really terrific. People are going to throw off the shackles of tradition all across the entire world, and we're going to live in a new era. And so he went and became a part of the French Revolution. He and others um, had high hopes for the French Revolution. If you know even the, the, like the vaguest thing about the French Revolution, the French Revolution did not go like the American Revolution. There were public executions. Um, there were jokes made about the guillotine because the guillotine was used with such regularity. Um, the streets of Paris actually ran with the blood of the victims in this revolution. Um, it was a horrible, horrible thing. But he went and got caught up in this. Um, he was you know, sort of instrumental in that. And then he decided that he was going to reorganize religion. That didn't go over very well. And so his obituary actually read, he had lived long and did some good and much harm. What a terrible way for him to end his life. Um, he died in such ignominy that people aren't quite sure where he's buried. He was, my understanding is he was interred somewhere, uh, dug up, moved, and then moved somewhere else, and nobody's quite sure where he's landed. Uh, but his work has subsequently been rehabilitated. You can see it referenced by people on both the right and the left in uh, the United States. It's not really claimed by either one, I would dare to say, because um, it belongs to everyone. Yes, I know people like Glenn Beck have you know, tried to appropriate it, but Thomas Paine belongs to really the entire United States because without his pamphlet, we would not be where we are today, which is the very first thing I started this entire podcast with. That is the reason that we study him because his, um, his analysis of the situation is so very instrumental and the arguments that he made uh, encouraged people. His, his pamphlet was a runaway success. And again, I would argue that without this pamphlet, um, there would be no American Revolution. Okay, that's kind of a sad note to end things on, but it's also where I, I like to land. When we come back next time, I'm going to look at the American context information. I'm going to unpack that. I believe uh, something like two weeks ago, I said I was going to do it in two weeks, and then um, I decided to put Thomas Paine here. So I will look at American context um, I hope that you've enjoyed reading Pain. I hope that I've given you some keys here to unlock his work, and I'll talk to you next time.